Welcome to Laser Focus, a podcast that takes you on the journey of discovery with the leaders that are changing the world with new design and revolutionizing how we think of advanced manufacturing. I'm your host, Renee Youssef, CMO and brand disruptor at Velo3D. Today, I'm speaking with Todd Flickenstein, founder, CEO, and chief engineer at Meraki Space Systems. Todd has been a space enthusiast since he was young. However, when he graduated from college in 2012, the space industry wasn't where he had hoped it would be. He decided to observe the space ecosystem as it took shape while learning about business and systems engineering through his entrepreneurial endeavors. Todd and his team believed that by working together, we could give humanity the opportunity to become a multi-planetary species. Welcome to the show, Todd. It's great to meet you. To kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career? Thanks for having me, Renette. I appreciate you guys bringing me on to this amazing podcast. I'm a lifelong space enthusiast. Been looking up at the stars ever since I was a little kid on my father's shoulders, wondering what was going on the moon, wondering what was going on up there. My curiosity was peaked at a, at a very young age about what's going on everywhere else other than here on Earth. So I carried that through life with me. I lost my way in high school when the space shuttle, the Columbia explosion happened. That kind of was disheartening for me, but I'd always wanted to be like a pilot or an astronaut, something to do with space. In college, I bounced around. I changed my major a total of seven times, believe it or not. Funny thing is I started off with mechanical engineering and I didn't get into the program that I wanted to. So I just backburnered that for a little while and did some other things like industrial technology. And I even went into pre-med and Physics was actually the last one that I ended on. And then it all came full circle. Decided I wanted to go into an engineering program after studying physics. I'm the son of a commercial fisherman, so basically grew up around boats my whole life. It's basically all I've really ever known. So after college, I really wanted to work in aerospace, but the industry is really difficult to break into. They really don't take chances on people in that industry. So after a couple of years of applying to everywhere, basically, eventually I decided, okay, well, this isn't going to happen right now. So I decided to just fall back on my maritime roots and just start working on the boats. I bought a boat. I lived aboard that 31 foot for 10 months. And eventually I met some people who were starting up a business and they needed some help. So I came on board with them and helped them out for a little bit. And, and then I met a guy who was doing the marine electronics, which is what I've been doing for the last four plus years. I really fell in love with that. And one day I was working on one of these boats. I was on the bridge in one of these multi-million dollar yachts. And I had this epiphany, this light came on, and I was like, oh man, the kinds of systems that you find on these multi-million dollar yachts, the same kind of systems you're gonna find on a space station or on a lunar settlement, even a spaceship, they're very similar. Similar systems with different applications. And I said, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna do this thing for real. I'm going to take a chance on Meraki space systems and just see where this thing ends up. And so that's the story. So you mentioned at a young age, you were really intrigued by space and the solar system and all the stars, but do you actually recall the moment you knew you wanted to devote your career to space exploration? It was right around five years old when I was out with my dad one night and he lit the fire inside of me saying something along the lines of there could be other people out there living like on planets around these stars. And that was just it for me. Hearing the idea that humanity may not be confined to earth is what really did it for me. And from that moment on, I was just hooked. I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could about it. I just don't know how I'm getting there. And so now I know how I'm getting there. It's through my business. Is this what's shaped your vision and to give humanity the opportunity to become a multi-planetary species? 
and what is the driving force behind the mission and how it relates back to Earth? Absolutely. As soon as I had this seed planted that we're not alone, it was like, okay, I want to go out there and see this for myself. And if we are truly alone, I want to make sure that it doesn't stay that way, you know, and that we can go settle on other worlds and give humanity the possibility of becoming multiplanetary. But I mean, for me, I look at the universe. Earth is just a single grain of sand in this infinitely large sandbox. There's just no way that we're alone. So it's clear that accomplishing lunar permanence requires a lot of iteration. So how does additive manufacturing fit into all this? Additive manufacturing is the future of manufacturing. While reductive manufacturing has its place in the world because there are certain things with certain geometries that you can't 3D print right now using additive technology, that's quickly becoming a thing of the past. In the future, we're going to be able to create all the parts that we will ever need through additive manufacturing processes. And I do see that the Laser powder fusion beds are really the best type of technology that we have right now for 3D printing parts. And really, it's going to be super important for establishing lunar permanence because while you can dot all your I's and cross all your T's, there's always a chance that something can go awry when you're on a mission, whether it be that you maybe you had a compartment vent or something when you were landing, maybe you lost some parts or pieces, or maybe you lost some tools or something like that, or maybe you just ended up in a situation where you had somebody who like lost a tool for whatever reason, or possibly you didn't account for a part that you were going to need, or maybe the part that you had wasn't exactly the perfect fit that you needed for your application. You can actually go back and change the design and remanufacture that part right there on the spot. We also hear the phrase or read the phrase a lot around the space race, but that also implies that there'll be some losers and some winners. How do you think about changing that perception in terms of that it's an emerging space industry as a collaborative endeavor with many contributors rather than a competition? Or do you actually think it is a competition? That's a great question. So I don't really believe in competition, at least in the space sector, because really we need as many players on the board as possible to make sure that humanity becomes multiplanetary, that we do become a spacefaring race. So. I just really feel like the competition mindset just doesn't really look good on the space industry and that we need to like work away from that because it's never going to be one person that's going to give humanity the gift of becoming multiplanetary. It's going to take all of us working toward this common goal. So while some people may view competition as being necessary to fuel innovation, I feel that we can actually find a way to work together toward achieving these goals where we don't really need to compete. There's so many different niches that people can pursue in the space industry that there's space for all of us. I really think that there's a way that we can all work together and collaborate with each other toward this common goal and that competition doesn't really need to be in the forefront um, of everyone's mind like it has been in the past. I do believe that it is possible for us all to get onto the same page and try to find out what our individual strengths are at these different companies and corporations and then come together and do something useful with all the different infrastructure that's being developed. Can you tell us a little bit about the lunar infrastructure Meraki is building? Yeah, of course. I've developed this base station, which we're calling essentially the lunar base station is what I've coined it. And it's going to be a 41 foot long by 21 foot wide by 21 foot tall structure. Essentially the largest piece of infrastructure ever launched into space. And it's designed to launch on Starship Cargo. and this. Design is based on the dimensions of what Starship Cargo can accommodate. So it's a little bit smaller than what can actually fit in there. 
So we've left ourselves with a little bit of wiggle room. While everybody else is sitting on the sidelines watching SpaceX to see if the Starship is going to become a viable option, we've gone all in. We're first to market right now on this because we're taking a chance on this unproven system. It is designed to be a multi-purpose system that can accommodate multiple needs while these astronauts are going to be on mission. So one of the things that we are looking to incorporate into the base station is a regolith-compatible metal 3D printer. So it's like we talked about earlier. You need to be able to mitigate problems when they arise. So having this metal 3D printer on board the base station, I feel is absolutely necessary to mission success. We want to work with Velo to try to figure out how we can use regolith to 3D print some parts because there's all these different types of metals in the regolith. So you may have to do some refining of the regolith to remove out some of the undesirables from it. But in the uh, long run, you should be left with a powder that can be usable for 3D printing purposes. So I don't know. I'm guessing Velo is probably working on that behind the scenes I anyway. Would you know, if, if you would if do that, then I can things. do all this marketing around it. That would be so much fun. Let's do it. You just got to figure out how to fit the thing in there. The facilities requirements, I think it. I think the smallest Sapphire only requires a 240 volt. Really, the facilities that are required for it aren't like an, the end of the world type of situation. It's mostly just, can we fit this thing in here? I, I think there's a way that we can find, find a method to refine the regolith so that it can be used to actually 3D print these parts. And that'll be a game changer. Once that starts happening, then people can start sending larger 3D printers up there that are just modular, meant to act on their own, not necessarily inside the base station. And then we can start doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But we have to prove that the systems can work in these microgravity environments first. But it's not a zero-G environment, so there is some gravity there. So I think that's really all that you need for these systems to work. Similarly, like that's another problem with the mining systems that we can get into that well, later. I love the passion and the there's no... It's so very entrepreneurial of you. There's no problem. I'll figure it out and solve it. You know, that's my mindset. The only limiting factor is your mind, right? So I don't like to say that something's impossible until I've proven that it's not possible. So while other people might be out there saying, oh, well, space is hard. If it could have been done, we would have done it already. There was more that I could go on about the base station. We wanted to add a couple of comforts of home to it. So you hear people talking about lab-grown meat these days, right? And it just got greenlit in the U.S. So we can actually start doing lab-grown meat experiments here in the U.S. So I figure, well, okay, so we're going to send these guys out there. You know, they're going to be pretty far away from home. So why don't we try to give them some comforts of home? Let's make sure that they're treated well, you know, while they're on mission. So I just want to keep morale high. If we can offer a burger and fries every Friday, that's going to be something for the guys to look forward to at the end of the week. That's amazing that you're thinking about morale too. And I feel like I'm watching a future Hollywood blockbuster. And that's where a lot of entrepreneurs go awry is they don't believe in their own vision. And eventually we're going to see all kinds of people coming out and trying to compete. And even though I don't like that word, try to essentially copy what we're doing, but that's okay. We're going to need as many players as we possibly can. That's why we're taking the private military corporation route, trying to find our niche within the commercial astronaut side of things. We don't want to be trying to compete with Axiom or... SpaceX astronauts or Blue Origin astronauts. We're trying to find what it is that nobody else is doing. And so that's why we chose the private military corporation ultimately. So there's one other thing about the base station that I wanted to just mention is the optical communication network. So why do we need lasers? Well, the reason that you need an optical communication link is for high throughput data transfers. So, I mean, we're talking like, I think you can maybe get like 100 megabits out of like an RF link. So we're talking like radio frequencies, which is really slow. We see gigabit speeds in our homes now and well above that. So an optical link 
provides gigabit level connectivity. So let's say you were in a pinch and you needed to get some software or some firmware or some files or something to somebody working at this base station, you could get it up there in a hurry using this optical link. So, I mean, we can transfer gigabytes worth of data like really quickly, but it's not just for transferring data. Um, the optical communication network can actually be used for propelling light sail craft. So let's say we have these companies that want to like make these light sail craft for deep space exploration, similar to the way Voyager is exploring, you know, deep space right now. There are companies that want to do more of that type of stuff, but they want to use something called a light sail. So essentially you can, when you're not using the laser for communication purposes, you can redirect it at their satellite and you can use the laser to propel the satellites. But we're also going to make it so the laser is variable power output so we can crank up the power and use it as a direct energy weapon to vaporize incoming meteorites that may threaten the lunar base station or perhaps agriculture domes or any sort of lunar asset, really. So we just want it to be multi-purpose and everything else can be added on modularly later on. You can have expansion modules landed, dropped on Starship and unloaded and then connected up to the main, the main base station as an expansion module. How far are we actually from becoming a multi-planetary species? As far as actually living on another categorized planet goes, oh, I don't think we're going to see people living on Mars until the mid-2030s. We're going to start seeing missions happening, going to Mars in the early 2030s probably, but it's mostly just going to be surveying. Maybe we might send some people to explore, but more likely than not, we're going to be sending robots to do more of what we've been doing. Once we establish lunar permanence and like we're comfortable living in microgravity and operating in this steer environment, that we'll have the confidence to be able to go to Mars. So I think probably we'll see people living on Mars, oh, anywhere between 2035 and 2040. That's my guess. That would be exciting. It would be, right? I know a lot of people think that it's like 20, 30, 40 years yeah. out, but it's probably only gonna take about a year if people start shifting their launches from like Falcon and Falcon Heavy over to Starship Cargo. We'll probably see it become human rated in about a one year period of time. So. As far as our timeline goes, I'm anticipating the Starship will make orbit this year and then we'll start seeing people launching cargo early next year, if not maybe, I don't know, spring of next year. So Todd, you talked a lot about changing your degree seven times or your major seven times, rather going to a lot of interviews and being rejected or learning from that experience. But if you could go back in time, and we've had a lot of entrepreneurs on this show, and I love asking this question, uh, what would you have done differently and why? I wouldn't have done anything differently. There was a moment in time when I was living aboard the boat back in 2016, 17, when I just decided to essentially let go and let God. And I decided to just be the stick in the stream and just see where the current ended up taking me. And um, it, it was at that time that things started turning around and getting better for me. So what I found was trying to control my life and where I was going just wasn't working out. And it wasn't until I said, okay, I'm just going to let go and just see what happens. That was when things started getting better for me and started going in the direction that's led me to where I am right now. And so while I've been through a lot in my life, disappointment and struggle and, and hardship, but I wouldn't change any of it because it's made me into the person that I am today. There were times in my life when I thought, man, if I could go back and do this differently or do that differently, maybe my life would be better right now. But you can't live your life like that because then you're always going to be wondering what if and 
you know, thinking that if you had made this decision, maybe you'd be in control of your future. None of us are really in control of our future. As much as we try to be, there's always external factors that are affecting our ability to be successful or get to where we want to be in life, whatever we deem to be success. If I hadn't have learned the things that I learned about boats, it wouldn't have led me to where I am right now. So I wouldn't go back and change anything. I'm really happy that my father is a commercial fisherman and that I grew up around boats and that I've learned everything that I've learned because really, I think it was always going to take somebody from outside of the space industry to come in and disrupt it the way that I have because the maritime industry is a great analog to what we're actually going to be doing when we start going to space. The best analogy is think of like an underwater welder working on some platform out in the middle of the ocean. He's a couple hundred feet under the water welding on this platform, you know, in high seas, the current's trying to move him around, but he's staying in place and he's welding on this platform. That's hard work. So I think that the people from this industry are going to actually be really well suited to working, you know, in the space industry because they've been there and done that in the terrestrial setting. So what about some advice that you've learned that you think our listeners would benefit from? So in my time working as a marine engineer, I've worked on a lot of these multi-million dollar yachts and sailboats, right? So a lot of the people that I've been exposed to and have been around have been millionaires, multimillionaires, even some billionaires, right? So when I was working on their boats, you know, I'd always say, how did you get to this point in your life? And they all have really similar stories. Basically, they all worked really hard when they were young and then they invested and diversified their portfolio, found multiple income streams. You know, it's similarly like when people ask like Elon Musk, like, why are you still working? You know, he's like, well, what do I have better to do? If I'm still capable uh, of working when I can do good in the world, that's what I want to do. That's one of these recurring themes with all these successful people that I've talked to is they, they never decided that it was good enough and that they always wanted to do more and provide as much benefit as they could to society. I, th- I think they're important lessons for a lot of people, not just entrepreneurs. But that's all we all time we have. And then I really appreciate your time, Todd. I, I learned so much and your passion is going to get you far. So thanks for coming on. Thanks, Renette. It's been great. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Space travel has always fascinated humans. And I think many of us can identify with the feeling Todd described of watching the stars as a child, wondering what more is out there. It's inspiring to see people like Todd transforming their childhood dreams into career pursuits. And I especially enjoyed hearing how Todd applied his in-depth knowledge of the systems in yachts to aerospace engineering. The journey of an entrepreneur is a unique one and not without its inherent challenges. When your mission is that of planetary proportions, you need a healthy dose of resilience and passion. And it's clear Todd does. After speaking with Todd, the concept of humans becoming a multi-planetary species seems to be part of our future. And it's going to take collaboration and teamwork to get there. It's interesting to hear the concept of the space race be flipped on its head in this way. Rather than a race to the finish, it becomes a rally with those who are passionate about improving the future for everyone on Earth. Thank you for listening to Laser Focused. You can find new episodes every two weeks on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and leave a review to help more listeners find us. I'm Renette Youssef, and this has been Laser Focused, brought to you by Velo3D, where together we innovate without compromise.